It has been a long time, I think, since I have uh, preached two different messages on the same Sunday morning. If I just pass out up here, I'm okay, just feel. <laughs> it's good to be back with you again today, and uh, we have benefited from the other men who have preached, and uh, we praise God for them. It's time to get back into Romans, at least for today. Let's start with prayer. Father, we're so thankful to you for your kindness to us. We always say that. I hope because we're always thankful. Because of all the good things that you have given us. And even the things that we feel like are difficult and insurmountable. We know that they are good gifts from you. And so, Father, we praise you. We worship you. We kiss the rod. And we declare that you are good, and you do good. And all of our hope is in you. We, for our whole lives, were people who were ensnared by sin, wanted nothing to do with God, at least not in the way that you have revealed yourself and called us to yourself. But now, Father, you have reconciled us to yourself by your grace, you have justified us by your grace. And Lord, we want to learn more about what that justification involves this morning. So we ask you to send your spirit to speak to us by your word, that you would protect us from error and fill us with your truth so that we can minister the truth, first of all, to our own hearts as we battle temptation every day. And also, Father, as we minister to one another, even here today, before we leave, may there be much prayer, may there be much bringing the word of God to bear, either to encourage or to exhort or rebuke or whatever is needed today. Lord, I pray that every person here would see themselves as a minister, as one who is called to minister the word of God to others. We praise you, Father, that you give us the privilege of every member ministry, and we want to be faithful to you in it. And so we give you thanks for what you'll do in this hour, the hour previous and the hour to come afterward. Lord, we pray that you'd be glorified in it and that we would know the joy of worshiping you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles with me to chapter 8. I'm sorry. <laughs> that has already been read. Romans uh, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Boy, I hope that isn't uh, a, a preview into what's about to happen in this hour. <laughs> when the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, his primary goal was not necessarily to preach the gospel to the people who were in Rome. Uh, rather, he intended to minister to the saints, that is, to the believers who were gathered there, there to worship in the city of Rome. As you know, the gospel invitation itself is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Even a child can understand such a simple proposition. Nevertheless, Paul knows that behind the simplicity, there is an absolutely magnificent complexity that finds its source in the mind of God in which he has revealed to us in his word. And Paul is revealing to us by the Spirit. Paul seems persuaded that helping Christians understand the inner workings of the gospel will be good for us. It will help us understand our world. It will help us understand ourselves. It will help us to grow in the knowledge of God. And so let's begin our study this morning with a brief review. In chapter 1, Paul shows his readers that in the eyes of God, all humans are in serious trouble, to say the least. And because of our sinful rebellion against God, we all stand before him justly condemned. Nevertheless, it is God's will that many would be made right with God. And to be right with God, a person must be as righteous as God is righteous in the eyes of God. There must be no moral defect in heart, word, or deed. 
Rather, there must be a life of perfect righteousness. But how can sinners ever hope to bridge that gap between themselves and the infinitely righteous God? I mean, that's the question, right? Now, some of you may be thinking, this is, are, are, are we, maybe you're visiting here today, and uh, either here or down the hall, and you're thinking, are, are really, are we rehearsing the gospel again? <laughs> Absolutely we are. Absolutely we are. We have yet to plumb the depths of the gospel. And besides, this is the next uh, passage in the book of Romans. And so it's so important for us. There must be perfect righteousness. And so how, how is man reconciled to God? Now, I suspect if you were to go down to Sundance Square this afternoon and ask 100 people how they can be made right with God, most of them would just blow you off. But the few who answered would give you an answer that is essentially consistent with this statement, that a good God rewards good people for doing their best. Um, I've had many people, they didn't word it like that, but basically what they're but the conclusion of their answer is, I think I'm good enough. I think I'm good enough. And I think God will honor my goodness. I mean, I haven't done anything really bad, right? And so you start comparing yourself with the worst people that you can imagine. But it all comes down to, we believe God rewards good people for doing their best. And the problem with that idea, however, becomes becomes apparent as soon as you begin reading the New Testament. You see, as you examine the life of Jesus, his life and ministry, you discover that the people who seemed most righteous in the eyes of men were the people that he had the harshest words for. It was them that he, he condemned. On the other hand, tax gatherers, prostitutes, sinners tended to be the objects of his compassion, his kindness, his mercy. How do you reconcile that? Now, this seems backward to us. Shouldn't God be more attracted to righteous people than to sinners? If that's really what you believe, then you have a, a significant flaw in your thinking, your theology. You see, in Romans, Paul teaches us that there is no one who's righteous, that's the problem with the statement. Nobody's righteous, even those who appear to be most righteous. And sometimes they're the worst. Every man, woman, and child lives before God as sinners by birth and sinners by choice. Moreover, we tend to believe from the heart that in the end, God will, God will say that we are right with him based on our works that we have fulfilled sufficiently some standard of moral rectitude that will acquit us at the judgment. But that way of thinking is shattered when we crash into passages like Romans 3, verse 19, which is right before our passage for today. And 3.19 says this, and we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that Every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Everything leading up to that point has been sin, condemnation, sin, condemnation, sin, condemnation, sin, condemnation, sin, condemnation. And then all of a sudden, verse 21, we read, but now... But now, this is a beautiful thing. What Paul is saying here is that even if you try to do your best to keep the law, the law that God had given to his chosen people, you will never make yourself sufficiently righteous to merit salvation. In the eyes of God, all of us are under sin, and we will be judged for our sin if we can't find a way to be made right with God, humanly speaking. Of course, we don't believe that we find it. God brings it to us by his sovereign grace. And so the $100,000 question then is, how can a sinner be made right with God? 
And furthermore, how is it right for God to justify sinners? There's two questions here. How can sinners be made right with God? And how can God justly make sinners right? And Paul intends to answer both of these questions in our text for this morning. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, and came to a Bible church, I hope you came with a Bible. If not, there's one in your pew rack or probably on your phone. Stand with me, if you would, and let's read Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. 21 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in the divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who is faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord, and you can be seated. Verse 21 presents us with a major pivot in Paul's teaching, as I said. Previous to verse 21, Paul was establishing that the whole world is under condemnation, but now... He speaks of sinners and their justification. Now, that's what this message is all about. I want to talk to you about justification by faith alone. And this is the passage to do it. It's really amazing. I was in counseling recently, and maybe I told you this, and, and I was sitting down with a brother who was struggling, and I took him to this passage, and we started working through it, and I realized there's not a single wasted word here. I mean, even as I was reading it just a second ago, I mean, it's like spilling diamonds all over. It's like, as I've said before, it's like uh, you find your, you, you fall into Aladdin's cave, right? I mean, there's so much treasure here. And, uh, and I want to mine all of it that I can today for us. We should know from the start that the term justified and righteousness are the key words here in the text as we move along. Now, as I studied this chapter or this passage over the past few weeks, I discovered that there are excellent scholars who approach this passage in a variety of ways. Everybody has a different way to, to, to come at it from a different angle, even though they're all saying essentially the same thing. But along the way, I, I, as I read the literature and listened to others preach this message, I discovered a pretty simple way to efficiently map out this text for us for this morning. So, here we go. I want to offer to you nine truths about the doctrine of justification. So I have nine points. And I'm going to make it. So for the sake of time, let's just jump right in. Number one, this is truth number one about justification. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification is apart from the law. Justification has no direct connection with the law. Paul writes, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. And this is what really made the Jews angry. Because it sounded like Paul was denigrating God's word, the law. And so the righteousness of God is the key theme in this passage, as witnessed by the fact that it's used four times in six verses. Four times in six verses, he says, the righteousness of God, etc. Now, it's important to note two things here about the righteousness of God that Paul is speaking of. First, righteousness in this context can be defined as the justifying activity of God. Righteousness here is the justifying activity of God. We'll talk about justification more later, but the term, the righteousness of God, is first used back in chapter 1, verse 18, where, where Paul told us that the gospel 
that in the gospel, the righteousness of God, again, this is back in 118. We are in 321. In 118, he says that the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is continually being revealed, and it is being revealed for the salvation of sinners. It is for salvation. From faith to faith. In previous chapters, Paul spoke of the condemning activity of God because of man's unrighteousness. Now that Jesus has died and risen, the justifying righteousness of God has come as the remedy for the threat of condemnation. The righteousness of God comes to satisfy the demands of the law. The second thing that we need to notice about the righteousness of God is that it is not obtained by law-keeping. And this is kind of the point of this point. The righteousness of God is not attained by law-keeping. It's not about being obedient to a standard. The righteousness of God that sinners so desperately need can never be earned or purchased by good works or by rote obedience to a moral code. Sinners must embrace the righteousness, God's righteousness, without regard to law-keeping. Attempting to keep the Ten Commandments, for example, will get you nowhere with God. The righteousness you need cannot be obtained by obedience to any moral code, not even the law of God. And so justification is apart from the law. Second, the second truth about justification is this. Justification is witnessed by the Old Testament. Justification by faith alone is witnessed by the Old Testament. Paul says in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, and here's the key phrase, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And when Paul speaks of the law and prophets, he's using a common term that that points to the, the whole of God's word, the entirety of the Old Testament. You may remember from two Romans sermons ago, which was a while back, and we talked about this point. Justification by faith alone is not a new teaching, and it's not not new now, but more importantly, it wasn't new when Paul was preaching it, and it wasn't new when Stephen before him was preaching it. It's found throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Genesis 15, 6, this is the classic passage that we'll come back to in chapter 4 when Paul talks about Abraham. But this is the part of the narrative in Genesis where, uh, where Abraham, where, where, where God comes to Abraham and promises that he will have a son in his old age. And this is the second time he's done it. And not just a son, but from that son would come a host of people that would outnumber the stars in the sky. And one of those people would be the Messiah. And then the text says, I mean, can you imagine being told that? You're, uh, you're in your 90s, late 90s, and, um, and God comes to you and says, your wife's going to have a baby. No wonder she laughed, right? She got in a little trouble for that, but the Lord spared her. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? I mean, that's the best word I can come up with. That is Unbelievable. Or you might say, it is unfathomable. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. That is outside of reality. But here's Abraham's response. Um, He believed the Lord, it says, and he counted it to him as, what's the word? Righteousness. So I want you to see the connection. Way deep Old Testament. Genesis. I mean, you can't go any further back than Genesis. And in Genesis, we have the key figure in the Bible at the time, Abraham. And Abraham believes the Lord. And God grants him righteousness. And it's, it's amazing. 
This connection between faith and righteousness. This is why we say it is justification by faith alone. It wasn't Abraham, believe, but then keep the law. You know how I know it wasn't believe and keep the law? Because in Abraham's day, there was no law. It wasn't until Moses. You see, beloved, justification by faith is not something Paul made up. It was active all the way back in Genesis. And consider other passages, and, and, and I'll just give you one or two more. Uh, Psalm 32. Here the psalmist writes, and we all love this passage. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, listen carefully, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He counts no iniquity. Well, this is David writing, right? I mean, did David ever do anything wrong? I mean, I mean, the thing we know, we know him as the king, and we know him by his sin. And maybe we know him by his sin. Even the world knows him by his sin. Listen, if the Lord does not count one's iniquity or sin against him, that means he counts them as righteous, even though he still sins. It is the righteousness of God apart from law. Now, last week, Jason reminded me about the story of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, where we meet a man and his wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the text describes them. These are elderly people, right? Senior saints. And the text describes them in the following way, Luke 1, 5 through 16. I'm sorry, 5 through 6. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And his name, or her name was Elizabeth. And they were both, watch this, righteous before God. They were righteous in the eyes of God. Isn't that interesting? But keep reading. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, that's a beautiful description of these two senior saints, right? And yet, six verses later, Zechariah gets the privilege of going into the temple and doing a rare thing. I mean, the, the, if, you were, if you were a temple priest, you may, one time in your lifetime, get to go into the holy place, not the holy holies, but the holy place, and minister before the Lord at the altar of incense. And he was given that privilege. And when he got in there, an angel appeared to him and says, um, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. You are going to have a son in your old age, very similar to Abraham. Abraham believed, and God counted it to him as righteousness. But here we have, um, we have Zechariah, who kind of balked at the angel's message. And the angel said, uh, Zechariah says, how will I know this will be true? And the angel said, I am, I am Gabriel. I am an angel. I mean, what do you mean questioning me? And so the angel struck him. And uh, he was, I think, deaf and mute. I, I think he was not just mute, but deaf, because when his son is born, he's waving with his hands, and he, and he takes some chalk or something, and he, he writes on the tablet, it gives me the impression that he couldn't hear either. So anyway, the Lord, the Lord disciplined him for sin. And yet, this is the description. These two, this husband and wife, were righteous before God. How can it be? What he just did was unrighteous. Yes, yes. But they were justified by faith alone. How are people saved in the Old Testament? Ever pondered that? Let me just give you the simple answer. They were saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And this brings us to the third. Oh, by the way, Martin Luther summed all of this up in the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, which means at the same time, justified and sinner. Justified and sinful at the same time. I love that. You know why I love that? Because it's me. I think there's plenty of evidence in my life that, that God has produced in me to demonstrate 
that I belong to him. And I am justified by faith, but I am also a sinner. None of us is able to keep the whole law of God. We need the righteousness of God to be credited to our account by God himself. And that brings us to the third point about the doctrine of justification. Number three, justification is provided by God. Back in verses 21 and 22, where Paul speaks of the righteousness of God, he means that righteousness that God imparts. Righteousness of God is a genitive of source. In other words, it is the righteousness that comes from God. It's not, not in this context. It's not the context of this is God's righteous standard. But rather, this is the righteousness that comes from God. The whole point of this is that this is good news. This is good news. This is not condemnation. This is how men are saved. They are justified by grace alone through faith alone. And so God's standard is absolute perfection. It's not that what Jesus... This is, this is what Jesus met in Matthew 5.46. We've talked about this before where he says, therefore, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, no one has the capacity to meet that standard. And even if we were to take a fresh start at, at meeting God's standard this very day, it's too late. It's too late. You've already failed to be perfect. If you doubt that, ask your wife. Ask your kids. There is no other place to go to obtain perfect righteousness. You can't get it from your church. You can't get it from a priest. You can't get it by your own diligence and, and efforts toward it. The righteousness of God can only be received from the hand of God. It is, as Martin Luther described it, an alien righteousness. It comes to us from outside of us. And that brings us to the fourth truth about justification. Justification is received by faith. Justification is received by faith. And now we come to verse 22 where we read, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The truly amazing part of this text is that it covers every aspect of the doctrine of justification. It's all here. There, is no, there are no wasted words. And the key words before us now are through faith. Through faith. And this tells us how sinners receive the righteousness of God. We receive it through or by faith. It's not by being good. It's not by being better than other people. It's not by making an extraordinary personal sacrifice for others or for your church. It's, it's not by doing penance or even doing something ostensibly for the glory of God. You can't earn this. You cannot earn it. And you know why you can't earn it? You know why God set it up so you couldn't earn it? It was so that he would get all the glory. All the glory belongs to him. I mean, if you get to heaven and you're saying, ha, I made it. I did it. Where's Bob? <laughs> he must not have been smart enough. He didn't take my advice. He wasn't good enough. No, 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 no. There is no boasting. It will all be because of the glory of God and for the glory of God. You can't earn it. God's righteousness only becomes operative in the human life through faith in Jesus Christ. As far as man is concerned, this is the only part that involves him directly. And the point of Hebrews 11, by the way, and the whole point of Hebrews 11 is to show that there has never been a means of salvation other than faith. This is not a New Testament novelty. All those faithful saints in Hebrews 11, guess what? They were Old Testament saints. And all of them were commended for their obedience? No. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you don't have to obey. I'm just saying it's not part of the salvation equation. If you are a child of God, you want to obey. You love your God. You love your Savior. 
You love your king. You love your master. You want to belong to him. You want to do what he says you should do. You know that it's for his glory and for your joy. And so the law is not obsolete in the sense that keeping the moral law of God glorifies God. It does. It just doesn't earn you any brownie points for salvation. Consider this in Romans 5, verse 4. I mean, and this is all throughout the New Testament, but Romans, I'm sorry, Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. I think that's pretty clear. The only way to receive righteous, the righteousness of God is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And faith is only as good as its object. I think this is, is such a, an important issue that many people today call themselves, they'll say, I'm a person of faith. I'm a man of faith. I'm a woman of faith. And I'll say, well, bless your heart. <laughs> what does that mean? What is your faith in? The better way to say it is, what is the object of your faith? If you just say, I believe, you know what that is? That's belief in belief. It is faith in faith. But you know what? That kind of faith is no anchor for your soul. It will not save you. Faith in faith is the equivalent of faith in nothing. The only thing that matters is what your faith is anchored to. If it's not anchored to the Son of God, the only Savior, then your faith is worthless. The fact that you say you believe will get you nowhere with God, even if you're earnest, because God doesn't save you for being earnest. He saves you because Jesus died in your place. And you can either reject that or you can embrace it with all your heart. People call themselves persons of faith, but you know, sometimes uh, when there's a tragedy, they talk to the person who's had the tragedy, like the house burns down or whatever, and they say, well, how are, how are you getting by? So I just believe. I just believe. I'm a man of faith. Here, here's, what, here's what Paul says in Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God through faith. And the object is Jesus Christ. 326. God is the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus is the anchor. Uh, you, you know that when my kids were younger, uh, one of the things we loved to do was rock climbing. We, we did rock climbing. Anytime we, could, we found a rock, we'd climb it. But there was some danger to it. Because if you anchored your line, your rope, to something that was flimsy or breakable, you could die. And that's a perfect analogy. You've got, we used to, before they anchored, they put in anchors in rock all over the, the country now, so you can just click in. But it used to be that we would have to tie off to trees, and we would try to be careful about how thick the tree needed to be before we put our lives on it. And we, we came up, somebody came up with the name bomb-proof. It's a bomb-proof tree. You want to you attach yourself to a bomb-proof tree because that thing's not coming down no matter how, you, how hard or how far you fall. That's the kind of anchor you need. And that's what Jesus is. Chapter 3, verse 28. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Chapter 4, verse 5. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. What is faith? Well, listen carefully. If you're sitting here thinking, you know, I'm not even sure I'm a believer. I'm just here to, I'm just curious. I'm here with a friend. What is faith? You want to know what faith is? Faith is complete surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
To exercise faith is to place your hope for life and death upon him. It is to entrust your whole life, body and soul, to your faithful Savior. Faith compels one to obey Christ, and it causes one to love Christ. You can't leave that out. Because Jesus said in John 8, 42, If God were your Father, you would love me. And instead they were thinking and seeking to kill him. Faith begins with your mind as it learns about the truth of your condition before God, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for sinners. It moves to the will where you commit to following wherever he leads. And it, it finds expression from the heart of Joy, in the heart of joyful worship and love to Christ. This is something that you cannot muster up on your own. It is something that God must give to you. And while you can't do anything to earn it or to force God to give it, you can ask for it. You can ask. And if you never come to him with the empty hand of faith, to receive his offer of the righteousness of God, then I plead with you. Don't you think it's time today to enter through the narrow gate? It's time to fly to Christ for mercy and forgiveness and eternal life. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. You have no promise of tomorrow or even the rest of this day. Do it today before we finish. And this brings us to the fifth truth about justification. Number five, justification is necessary for everyone. Justification is necessary for everyone. And I hope you can see here as you're tracking along that we're covering every verse, every, every phrase, every key word. Justification is nece necessary for everyone. In that same phrase, that same verse, Chapter 3, verses 22 through 23, we read that the righteousness of God is for all who believe. For there is no distinction. And what distinction is he talking about? He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now notice two things here. Notice the tenses here. In the English it comes out, and I think rightly, past tense, right? So all have sinned, but then there's a present tense and fall short. We've done it before, we're doing it now. We do it today. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It makes no difference whether you're rich or poor. It makes no difference whether you're male or female. It makes no difference whether uh, you are Jew or Gentile. It makes no difference whether educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter if you're from America or Zimbabwe or China or anywhere else. Everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Now picture yourself on the divine scales. We've talked about this before. I'll talk about it a little bit differently today. Picture yourself on the divine scales. God is measuring your goodness to see if you're righteous enough to get into heaven, which is totally bogus. There is no such thing. It's never going to happen. But just for conceptual ideas here, let's talk about this. Picture yourself on the divine scales. You sit on one side, and the glory of God is put on the other side. When you compare your righteousness, your goodness, to that of God's resplendent glory, when you compare your righteousness to his majesty, his infinite purity, his transcendent holiness, you realize you're in a world of hurt. In the previous service, we talked about Isaiah. I've been doing that a lot lately for some reason. The Lord's have it on my heart. And Isaiah, the prophet, when he sees the Lord, what happens? Falls down like a dead man. Pronounces curses on himself. When you compare yourself with the glory of God, you realize you're in serious trouble. 
Because if you do not measure up to the glory of God, you will be unwelcome in God's house. What's worse, we are all in the same predicament. None of us measure up. That's the point of all. We all deserve God's righteous judgment because we have all failed to lift up to to live up to the purpose for which we were created, namely to magnify the glory of God. The righteousness of God is desperately needed by every human being who has ever lived. But we can't obtain it. We have to obtain it only by faith. We can't do it by works. It's got to be justification by faith in Jesus. Justification is necessary for everyone. Everyone needs it. Steve Lawson was right when he emphasizes this fact by saying, you will never meet a person the rest of your life who does not need the righteousness of God. And this brings us to the sixth truth about justification. Justification is declared by God. Now that may sound rather amorphous, nebulous, but it makes sense when you understand what we're talking about here. Justification is declared by God. Once again, verse 23, we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, what's the next word? Justified, etc. Now he's not saying that all sinners are justified, but he's saying everyone needs to be justified, and if you are justified, you will be justified as he's described it. Justify, the term, is a legal word. It's a legal term. It's often referred to in theological circles as forensic justification. The word forensic tells us that it has something to do with the court of law. You're probably familiar, at least in, in, in name, with forensic medicine, right? Uh, you've seen CSI. I've never seen that, actually, but... Uh, you've seen any of the TV shows where they're trying to put bad guys in jail and they have a coroner who's going to, you know, check out somebody's, you know, body and, and find evidence that they'll bring to court. It's forensic. It's forensic. So forensic has the idea of, of bringing it to the court. And so forensic justification is a proper term because you will be justified in a legal manner. It means to declare someone to be righteous. The term is used to identify an accused person as not guilty. He's standing in the dock, and people are accusing him, and the judge finds him not guilty. Fully acquitted, righteous. When God justifies him, it indicates that all the demands of his law are completely fulfilled on his behalf. It's the righteousness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And it is the very righteousness of Christ. Justification is a positive legal judgment on behalf of the accused. And you, my friend, are the accused. And what you need is for the judge to say, not guilty. Problem is, you know you are guilty. But it's also more than that. It's not just that the Lord, by his grace, through faith, erases all of our sin, expunges it from our record. Because if all we had was a lack of demerit, that is, if our record showed nothing wrong here, he's never sinned, it wouldn't be enough. You'd be a big fat zero. Can I say fat? You'd be a zero. You would, be, you would have neither merit nor demerit. That is not a category in biblical theological terms. But God not only expunges the entire record of our sin, he also imputes to us positive righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. R.C. Sproul cautions us here about the idea of thinking of justification as pardon. Uh, pardon shows up in, our, in some of our hymns and poetry, and, uh, and it's a beautiful word. 
And when it's used in those hymns, we can still sing it. But uh, Sproul warns us or cautions us about the use of the word pardon because to pardon means that the accused is really guilty and remains guilty. But it's an act of kindness on the part of the president or some ruler. He has been released from his imposed sentence. But this is not what happens in justification. When God justifies you, you are no longer guilty. You know who is guilty when you are justified? Jesus. He is now guilty for your sins and is treated by God as a sinner. This is truly amazing. Our justification is declared by God. He is the judge. He is the one who pronounces the verdict. It's important to know that in the act of justification, we are passive. We're standing in the dock. We're listening to the, the prosecution. You're wanting to make a defense, but you have no grounds to make a defense. And you've got the judge up there listening to all of this. And he will make a decision. He will justify or not justify. And we are passive in the process. We have nothing to contribute. And that's the whole point of saying that we are justified without the law. We're justified without any defense. We have nothing to offer God by which to commend ourselves to him and to merit justification. There is no such thing as meriting justification in the eyes of God. The accused sinner is passive. God does everything. And that brings us to the seventh truth about justification. Justification is received as a gift. It's received as a gift. Look at verse 24. We read, and are justified by his grace as a gift. As a gift. Before we meet Christ, before he met Christ on the Damascus Road, Paul had hoped that after a lifetime of diligent faithfulness and perseverance and observing the law, he would one day get to hear God the judge declare him righteous at the final judgment. But, as F.F. Bruce responds, in this, in this way of righteousness apart from the law, the procedure is reversed. God pronounces believers righteous at the beginning of their course, not at the end of it. And if, the, if, if he pronounces them righteous at the beginning of their course, it cannot possibly be the basis of works that have not yet been done. True justification, on the contrary, is an act of God's free grace, wherein he forgives all our sin and accepts us as righteous in his sight. And in all of this, we are merely the passive recipients of God's kind and merciful grace, which he bestows on us for his glory. And that leads us to the eighth truth about justification. Justification is purchased by Christ. This is the crux of the whole thing. It's interesting that I said it that way, crux. You know what crux comes from? It comes from crucifix, crucif cruciform, crucifixion. This is the crux of the matter. And this is where the cross comes in. Verse 24 says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the first time in Romans that the verb to justify is used in a positive context pointing to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's right here. But the point I want to make here is that the reason our justification comes at no cost to us is not because justification is cheap, but because someone paid the exorbitant price for it on our behalf. The word redemption here means to rescue by means of payment as a ransom. You have been captured by the enemy. And there must be payment. What is the ransom price required? 
to deliver the sinner from slavery to sin and its just condemnation. What's required as payment is nothing less than the blood of Christ. Paul says in verse 24, through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I mean, that is a mouthful. That is, that is almost the whole doctrine of justification right there. Let me read it again. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. It's all there. The word propitiation means to satisfy, to appease. Specifically, it means to satisfy the just demands of God's law against sinners. And the only acceptable payment would be a sacrifice made by God himself. And for that reason, God the Son left his heavenly throne and offered himself as a ransom, as payment. By his perfect life, his act of obedience, he satisfied all the demands of the law for you. And by his bloody death, he appeased the wrath of God who said, the wages of sin is death. The hymn writer was right when he wrote, in my place condemned he stood. All our sin was imputed to Jesus' account. Imagine this as, as in the law courts. The judge is standing or sitting at his bench. On this side, we have the record of all, of all your sin. And over here, you have all the record of Jesus' sin. And the record stands by saying, guilty, 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 guilty. And we look at Jesus' ledger and it says, righteous, 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 righteous. And God, by his grace, through faith for his glory and for our joy, takes this ledger, this record of all of our sin, and puts it on Jesus' account legally. And takes all of his righteousness and puts it on our account legally. It's amazing. This is what Paul is arguing. Because of this, we are no, under, no longer under the law's condemnation. But you know what? It's not that no one is under condemnation for your sin. Jesus came under that condemnation. We are no longer under it. We are free. We are free and righteous in his sight through Christ. One time Martin Luther had a friend who contacted him. It's a friend who um, was experiencing significant spiritual distress. And he wrote a letter to Martin Luther. And Martin Luther wrote back with some counsel to the man. And this is what he said. He says to the man, Learn to consider Christ crucified. Make sure that you keep your gaze on the cross and learn to sing to Jesus in this way. I mean, I can't even imagine that rough and tumble Martin Luther counseling someone to sing to Jesus. But this is what he says. Make sure you keep your gaze on the cross and learn to sing to Jesus in this way. And then he gives the song that he wants him to sing. And the lyrics of the song go like this. Lord Jesus... You are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine. You set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I am not. Amen. When Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, he said it like this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in case you haven't heard, this is what it means. On the cross, 
God treated Jesus Christ as if he lived your wicked, rebellious, sinful life. And why did he do that? He did it so he could treat you as if you had lived Jesus' perfectly righteous life. That is justification. It is justification by grace alone. It can only be given by God at the impulse of his free grace. And it must be received by faith. Amazingly, as Paul repeats in Romans 3.24, all of this can be received not by a promise to God that you would do better or by striving to keep the law, but simply by faith, believing in the perfect life and propitiatory death of Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the ninth and last truth about justification. Number nine, justification is granted by a just God. And so this is the first, the second question. The first question was, how can men be made right with God? And the second question is, how is it right for God to make sinners right? At the beginning of the text, we asked these two questions. The first eight truths explain how God makes sinners righteous. But now the question is asked, how is it right for God to do this? And the answer is in 25 and 26, and we'll just hit this briefly. Here we read, um, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. You know what that means? Remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden and God said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they ate of it and they didn't die. Why not? God temporarily passed over their sins. And you see that all the way through the Bible. God tempor- Noah, God temporarily passed over all their sins, their sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, let me just do a little Bible study with you. Notice the word this. This was to show God's righteousness. Now, what does this point back to? It points back to the propitiatory sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. This, the death of Christ, was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, but now they're being paid for. Now they're being legally transacted. And then verse 26 says, it was to show. What is the it? The it is the sacrifice of Jesus. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier. He could have declared us all not guilty and it would have been unjust without the perfect sacrifice. But because there was the perfect sacrifice, his justification of sinners is indeed just. It is consistent with the very law and person of God. You see, the difficulty with God's plan of salvation was not getting sinners to accept the holy God, but rather getting holy God to accept man without violating his own perfect standard of justice. But by the perfect life and substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf, God showed himself to be just and the justifier of those who believe. Do you believe? Have you put all of your hope in Jesus Christ? Have you thrown your life on the mercy of the court? Have you said to God, God, I have nothing to offer you? You've got nothing. That's why we call it the empty hand of faith. God, I have nothing to offer you. Here I am holding up the cup of salvation. I'm asking you, Lord, my only hope is that you'll put something in it, to put righteousness in it. If you would give me what I desperately need and don't have and can't earn, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, be propitiated toward me, the sinner. 
You see why Luther said justification by faith alone is the ground upon which all of Christianity stands or falls? It is the hinge upon which all Christianity swings. J.I. Packer says the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the atlas that bears the full weight of the gospel and all Christian teaching. This is no small thing. It is a glorious gift to all who will believe it and receive it by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for this morning of worship and teaching and fellowship. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who has yet to throw all of their hope on Jesus Christ because of what he's done for us, that today would be the day. Give them the grace to come through the narrow gate and not follow the world through the broad way. Oh, Father, save them, rescue them. Surprise them by your spirit, giving them a love for Jesus and a desire to follow him wherever he goes. And Father, we will rejoice in that, and we praise you for the work you're doing in our hearts even now, even in my heart. And we praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen.